Hello and welcome to Hampshire Hist Bites. Join us as we delve into the past and go on a journey to discover some of the county's best and occasionally unknown history. We'll be speaking to experts and enthusiasts and asking them to reveal some of our hidden heritage as well as share with you a few fascinating untold tales. In today's episode, Kathy Booth will be talking to Professor Christopher Mulvey to find out why English has become a global language, why the Queen doesn't speak like a Hampshire farmer, and what Winchester has to do with it all. Over to you, Kathy. My guest today is Professor Christopher Mulvey, an Emeritus Professor of English from the University of Winchester. He is a trustee of the English Project and General Editor of the Winchester University Press. Hello, Chris. Hello. Hello. What is the English Project all about? Well, the English Project has a mission to explore and explain the English language in order to educate and entertain the English speaker. Um, And we feel that the English speaker is anybody throughout the world who speaks the English language. And our goal is to set up a museum of the English language in Winchester in Hampshire. Set up a museum? Yes, a museum of the English language which would tell the whole history. It'll explore English through time and space. So it'll start way back in the 5th century and come right up to the 21st century. It would also start in, we might call it Britannia, and then spread out to the whole world. There are 70 English language communities in the world. Some of them are huge, like the North American one that has over 3 million speakers. And some of them are more tiny, like Barbados which I think has about uh, 700,000 speakers. All the Englishes are different, but they're all interchangeable and we can all understand one another. We're talking here about the native speakers of the English language, but we're also very interested in all those people who speak English as a foreign language or speak it as a second language. I see. And why are you choosing Winchester for this museum? Well, Winchester's a lovely place and it's where I live. (laughs) where my university is placed. But there are a lot of Winchesters in the world. There's a Winchester here in Hampshire. There's one in New Hampshire. And there are 25 more Winchesters in the United States. And there's one in Canada, too. And there's one in Australia. Any of those Winchesters could be the place of this museum. But nonetheless, England's Winchester calls louder than most Winchesters. First of all, it's the first Winchester. Second, it's the Winchester of Alfred the Great, and we count him as the first patron of the English language. He was a king who taught himself to read and write in English, which is fantastic, so unusual. And then his program of translation of Latin works into English that took place here in Winchester and Hampshire meant that he produced a series of six great books which were copied by the monks and spread all the way up to at the border with Scotland. And so his English, which is West Saxon English, became a kind of standard English. There were four versions of English operating through what we might call England then. And it was King Alfred's West Saxon English that became the first classical English. It's not the English that we're speaking now. What is the difference? Well, there were four major dialects. English started, well... 100,000 years ago, because all languages started 100,000 years ago, and there might just be one time when human beings started to talk a language, and now they've evolved into the 
7,000 languages which exist in the world today. But English that we can call English, we take that language as it evolved, brought over to the island of Britannia, as the Romans called it, in the 5th century, around about 450. Angles, Saxons, Jutes, and maybe other tribes began to invade Britannia because the Romans had left. Germanic hordes had, had actually invaded Rome, so all the legions were pulled out and, and, and drawn back to Italia. And then these Germanic peoples began to see this very desirable landscape, a very profitable place to be, actually. They began to move across the North Sea. Angles, Saxons, and Jutes speaking a language that we call West Germanic, and they brought different versions of it or different dialects of it, and those become North English, Southern English, Midlands English. Those are not quite the right terms. Technically, there's a Northumbrian and Mercian and Kentish and West Saxon, and those are the origins of all the English dialects that we have today. Which one became the most dominant? Well, in the time of King Alfred, which he was sort of at its height in 888, is an easy number to remember, the West Saxon created the Kingdom of Wessex, and they then began to move out. And the West Saxons, for whatever reasons, became the most dominant. The only people who could hold on against them were the Danes. But they then got submission from all the other leaders and kings of Britannia who were of Germanic origins. And so West Saxon became the dominant dialect. But it suffered a tremendous setback one day. Why is that? 14th of October, 1066. Do you know what happened? The Norman French invaded, who were also a Germanic people, the Northern Germanics, who'd now adopted the French language. Amazingly, they did that in about one generation. It's extraordinary how languages can change. They invaded by way of Hastings, and they swept aside the West Saxons after they'd killed King Harold with that arrow in his eye, and they completely dominated all the way up to the Firth of Forth. All the Saxon nobles fled to what we now call Scotland, and that was a sort of stopping point of the Normans. They dominated the huge space, 350 miles of it, and they, of course, didn't speak English and were not interested in English. English they considered to be the language of the defeated. By 1350, though, English was returning in force. Because the Normans were never more than 5% of the population. Which, by the way, we'll come to that 5% again. They dominated the country. They spoke French. All of their courts spoke French. French became the ruling language when... The written great language was Latin. So Latin and French dominated. But the population as a whole, which might have been as many as three or four million, were all speaking English. And by 1350, English had begun to return. French remained the polished language, the sophisticated language. But more and more people wanted to use English in the law courts in London. Up to that point, you were not allowed to speak in English in the court. You had to have an interpreter. And by the way, the lawyers still have a lot of French in their language. But by 1400 English, we got the first king of uh, England, who was a native English speaker after the old Saxon kings, after Harold. That was Henry IV. He grew up speaking English remarkably. And then he became king 1388, whenever he killed Richard II. 
say English return, but the English return was the English of London, not the English of Winchester. And that is a version of Midlands English or Mercian. We now think of that as the language of Wolverhampton, but it evolved in London into the language of Her Majesty and became the dominant version of the English language in England. So is that the one that you would hear on the BBC? In its most <laughs> refined form, yes. That's what we call English public school English. That's the English spoken by our present Prime Minister. I'm speaking a slightly lower form of it, home counties English, kind of grammatically correct English, but I say house, not heist. I say get out, not get out. And what kinds of English do we find in Hampshire today? West Saxon English didn't disappear, of course. It disappeared from writing to a large extent. But, of course, the population, I, I call them the peasantry, continued to speak it. And then it evolves into West Country English, which remarkably, in the 50th, 16th century, and really the 17th century, the English began to expand out of England, and they moved to Africa, they moved to India. But the place that we think about mostly is that they moved to North America, the Americas. And the main city of migration was Bristol. And the largest populations en masse to move particularly to what became Virginia from west of England. And they were talking West Country English. And that's the basis of Southern English in the United States. The kind of thing you get in Johnny Cash. And that is what, what really happens to West Saxon. West Saxon becomes West Country English, and then it becomes Southern American English. And what effect did World War II have on Hampshire English? Well, that's very interesting. Really, West Country English was pretty dominant in Hampshire up until the Second World War. But in the Second World War, remarkably, they began to plan the welfare state and also a whole series of new cities to export what they call the overspill of population in London, partly because they knew the population would expand, but also because so many houses were being destroyed in London through the bombing. Uh, and then they planned to set up three cities in Hampshire, only two of them really fully developed, and they are Basingstoke and Andover. By 1950, they began to decant or export large numbers of people from London who took up home in Basingstoke. Basingstoke was a lovely little village, which it isn't anymore. And Andover was another little sort of township. With the huge expansion of populations, they arrived all together. They arrived with their children. When children go to a school, they normally just adopt the accent of the local children. But in this case, the London children overwhelmed the Hampshire children, you might say, and said in northeast Hampshire, you've got really an extension of London English or home county. West country English still remains. Um, when I arrived in Hampshire 40 years ago, I, they seemed to be much more prominent. There's a chap at the university, oh, Chris, I like you, you're a nice man. And I said, well, thank you very much. Um, I'm not getting it quite right, but he really did speak with a rural accent. And that's very commonplace, maybe a bit less commonplace. So many people like me have arrived in Hampshire, bringing home counties English with us, that the English of Hampshire has altered quite a bit. 
then there are lots of other groups that speak different kinds of English. There are ethnic groups, and there are groups who are sort of societal, social groups. And then, of course, you've got upper, middle, and lower class accents. So there's different versions of Hampshire English depending on your ethnic background. Yes, there was a large migration of Asian peoples into England from the 1960s. Here we're talking about Pakistani peoples and Indian peoples, and they arrived as communities in both Southampton and Portsmouth. In Portsmouth, you've got a Bangladeshi community. And in Southampton, you've got a Sikh or Indian community. They're speaking English and they're bringing their own English with them because one of the great centers of English language today is India, where there must be maybe as many as 300 million people or more using English. In Portsmouth, you get then a Bangladeshi version of English. We would just recognize all those as being Asian English, but they're relatively distinct versions. There are communities of such people in Birmingham and in Leeds and in Bradford and so on. These are a demonstration of the way that English began to spread across the world and began to be adopted, not as a foreign language. A foreign language is when you learn English at school, or second language is when you learn it on the street or for commercial reasons, or you just pick it up. But on the other hand, the English spoken by the Bangladeshis or by the Bangladeshi British in Portsmouth. It's its own version of English and just one of the many different forms of English that we've got in England today. And you mentioned there's different class versions of Hampshire English. Yes. The word Hampshire English is probably not quite the right word. We might say the English language in Hampshire, and that appears in a number of different dialects and ethnolects, and what you're talking about now are called sociolects. You get different kinds of English spoken by different social groups. And English is actually quite pronounced in this way. Japanese apparently doesn't have sociolects, but they must have something else. Sociolect is a dialect spoken by a particular social group. And what you and I are now talking is a kind of home counties English, and it's a middle-class English. It's grammatically correct, but it is rather different from the upper-class English spoken by the 5% of those persons who went to boarding school or who imitate that accent. Now, that's the speech, really, of Boris Johnson or David Cameron, and it's a, a highly inflected version of that Westminster English, which evolved as the dialect of the court. The Queen might say, if she asked you to leave, which she probably wouldn't. Somebody else would ask you to leave a house. Get out of my house. I haven't got it quite right. But we call it a posh accent. 5% of people learn it at home, and then another additional 2.5% learn it by going to upper-class boarding school. It's a very handy accent to have. It's also therefore called a public school accent around about 1900, and then from 1930s onwards starts to be called BBC English because the BBC would only employ people who had public school accents. When did that change? Well, it began to change, I think, in about the 1970s, 1980s, partly when they began to develop a whole 40 or more local stations, like the one you've got in Southampton and the one in Birmingham or one in Newcastle. And in those local regional stations, they began 
under some kind of real social pressure to employ people with local accents. But if you look at somebody like uh, Joan Bakewell or Kate Ad, they speak with a sort of BBC accent. But when they were at school, I mean, as, as children, but they spoke with northern accents. Kate Adie with a Sunderland accent. I can't imitate it. But she couldn't get a job unless she spoke with a highly inflected uh, upper-class accent. But in a way, the Beatles did in all that. The Beatles refused to accommodate, and they spoke in their Liverpool voices. And, and in the 1960s, a big pressure began against the BBC accent. And some of my younger nephews have refused to talk like me or their father, and they have adopted what's called estuaria. Hello, Uncle, how are you feeling? <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing you can do about it because they became a reverse. The prejudice was to go upwards up until 1950, 1960, and then there became a kind of controversial debate about things, and then Youngsters now often wouldn't want to talk like what's called estuarian London. It's a kind of accent that mixes Cockney with Afro-Caribbean. And it's the accent really of musicians, rock stars, people of that. How interesting. Right. Well, how has English become so widespread? How has it become such a global language as it is? Yes, this is a, a very interesting point. First of all, it's nothing to do about the inherent merits of the English language. All that we, as linguists, would say that all languages are equal. There's a lot to be said about that, because not all languages will have the same number of words. But in, in deep-level grammar, all languages are equal. There's no one language to be preferred over another. However, the English language, which up until, shall we say, 1600, was really only spoken by people who lived in England and not people in Wales or the north of Scotland or in Ireland. But from 1600 onwards, the English got their act together after the great civil wars of the 15th century and the religious war wars. By 1600, they began now to move out and create what we came to call by 1800 the British Empire. And by the time of the British Empire, English was being spoken in Canada, in Australia, in America, in lots of parts of Africa, and particularly, of course, in India. And it became the administrative, the dominative language, the educational language. In all those countries, you've got local populations able to speak English because they needed to get on in life or to deal with the British administrators and governments. When England began to falter, 1945, we might say, was not the strict end of the British Empire, but the real end of any kind of British dominance. There was another huge superpower that took over. And, of course, that was the United States. So the language of the sea is English because the Royal Navy and the merchant fleet of the 19th century was totally English. The language of international aviation is English because the Americans developed and expanded aviation. So for 200 years, the major force in the world was an English-speaking force. Now, whether we will remain in that position at the moment, according to Professor David Crystal, there are over 2 billion people using English. And that's more than a quarter of the population of the world. 
And the English accent, do you see that staying different in the different countries or with globalisation, will we all merge to sound the same? No, that's an interesting bit there. There are 700 accents, actually, in the British Isles. That's not the same as dialects, but there's 700 different ways of speaking English. What is happening is that on a local street level, you've got a massive numbers of different ways of pronouncing English, but you don't have many ways of writing it. There are only two distinct ways of writing English. It's either with American spelling or British spelling. American English is really quite a lot different from British English. Harry Potter, by the way, is translated into American English for the American children. I mean, there are about 20 little changes on each page. You would hardly notice them. And they actually changed the title of the Philosopher's Stone. I think they call it the Sorcerer's Stone. So there are subtle differences, but written English is pretty well universal. Sorry to interrupt, but what sort of differences are there? I mean, I know about the word spelling colour and things like that, but, you know, you said 20 changes on a page. Ah, that's very difficult. You see, my problem was that I lived in America for 15 years. <laughs> my English became a kind of mixture of British and American English. One of the things the Americans say, uh, I dove into the pool. Now, I would say I dived into the pool. And dove is old Saxon, the old English past participle, what would be called a strong verb. There are tons of little differences like that, which if somebody said to you, I dove into the pool, you'd know what they meant. You'd think it was a bit odd, and you might think it was wrong. But they also say roofs instead of roofs. <laughs> There's lots of difference in the, but there are subtle differences in grammar. And I, I must make a list of them because I haven't got them. But there's lots of different words. They say, I have had it fit uh, in place. We'd say fitted. Modern British English has evolved much more towards what are called weak verbs. And the Americans have preserved quite a few old strong verbs, as they're called. So to the Americans, we sound old-fashioned. To us, they sound old-fashioned. In Elizabethan times, for instance, the shops and store were sort of alternate. The Americans would always say, I'm going to the store. Well, stores, we'd say we're going to the shops. Um, but both words are equally old. And you were saying that there's lots of different accents and that those won't merge with multimedia. No, there is a feeling. As quite a few people say everybody's beginning to talk alike. No, there's, they're kind of dominant accents. I mean, I say there are 700 accents in the, in the British Isles. That's what I'm told by the authority at the British Library. But in fact, they're sort of dominant, what we would call Southern English, Midlands English, London English, home counties English. What they tend to do is they all evolve, but sort of simultaneously. It's a bit like sort of evolution. The, the lions and the gazelles and the wildebeest, they are all changing but the lions never become wildebeest. <laughs> However, the accents are evolving continuously and they, to some extent, remain distinct. The point about it is we all are using English in order to understand each other. So there is a tendency towards a center. As a centripetal force, it draws you inwards. And that's because we all need to understand each other. The great attractive force is probably American English. When we say the world is talking English, mainly the world now is beginning to be talking American English or using it as their standard. Now, I just wanted to go back to the museum that you were talking about. Oh, yes. So what are the plans for that? 
where are they up to? Well, we have an idea that an English language museum is something which is perfectly possible with information technology. It would be focused mainly on the spoken language and the history of the spoken language, as far as we can get that. We would like to locate it in a building in Winchester. We need a lot of money for that, like the starting point would be £25 million to get going. We are now working with the Hampshire Cultural Trust because there's a great deal of interest in setting up a museum which focuses upon Anglo-Saxon England and King Alfred. And we would very much combine with them. We would have a museum which would be giving you a sense of the wonderful richness and strangeness and variety of the English languages right across the world. We would have holographic figures talking in all the different accents and different Englishes of the world. I went to a wonderful language museum in Sao Paulo once where they had done a history of the Portuguese language or Brazilian language. They called it Portuguese, of course. And I saw how lively it could be. It could be absolutely wonderful with information technology because this is where King Alfred's English became the first dominant kind of English. And so that's why it could be located here. We shouldn't have it in Oxford or Cambridge or London because those have got too sort of dominant away of their own kind. Although it might be a good idea to have such a museum in Edinburgh because that Scots English is one of the lovely kinds. Of, they're all lovely. I mustn't say anyone's more attractive than another. That's great. Was there anything else that you wanted to touch on, Chris? No. The only thing I might say is, had the, the French not arrived, and had King Alfred's English remained the English of the English peoples and become the standard of at least uh, Britain, then the Queen, when she speaks to us on the 25th of December, will be saying to us, my husband and I would like to wish you a very Merry Christmas. But um, that's, not, <laughs> that's not what she says. <laughs> <laughs> that's lovely. Well, thank you very much indeed. You're most welcome. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about, then please visit the website, winchesterheritageopendays.org. Click on Hampshire Histbites, and there you'll find today's show notes, as well as some links to more information. Thank you for listening. <laughs>